0: Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and history podcast. You're listening to episode 39, Clarence Thomas the Murderer.
1: Hey, hey, listeners. I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Kill who we kill. Make a game of it when we make a game of it. And today I'll be talking about season three, episode four, Bart the Murderer, which first aired on October the 10th, 1991.
0: And I'm going to be talking about Clarence Thomas, the US Supreme Court Justice appointed by President George H.W. Bush. On October 15th, 1991, just five days after Bart the murderer was first dead, his appointment was confirmed by the US Senate, but not without some controversy. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus.
1: Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Somebody did tweet at us, at underscore retrospecticus. Uh, It's our old mucker, Timothy Burleson. He says... Cheers, Quarantinos! Love the podcast, but I would like to dispute The Leftorium being the only debut. This episode saw the first appearance of the great Just Stab the Ticket Man, probably one of the best quaternary characters. Just wanted to let you know, stay safe, lads. And we certainly will, Timothy. As you can hear, uh, neither of us are yet to be affected by COVID-19. And I certainly take your point about Stamp the Ticket Guy. How I missed that, I'm not entirely sure. Although, as Tom and I were discussing, we did find when Flanders failed, oddly flat. So perhaps I
0: just lost the will at that stage. Yeah, it really didn't bear well for the last episode because we'd had to go back to Skype We couldn't see each other. We were at the start of the current COVID-19 outbreak. So yeah, everyone was a bit down. Whereas now, we've got used to the idea of being in almost permanent lockdown, used to the idea of never going outside and slogging through it with uh, coping strategies, which include copious amounts of alcohol, basically. Um, I have taken to live streaming stuff on Twitch. So if you're interested, you can see what I'm up to at twitch.tv slash and at the moment, I'm streaming some old-school Zelda, so join me there if you like. Excellent. Is that the version where all the dungeons are mixed up? Yes, that's right. It's the, it's the A Link to the Past randomizer, which I'm a massive fan of. And I've got a proper setup for it now as well. So, so I have a proper gaming chair, and I've got a desk, and I've even stuck a bank of plugs next to my desk so that they're all in easy reach. You know, I, I, I am getting organized. It's it, it's it's like I work from home all the time now. It's great. Excellent. I
1: imagine a lot of our listeners are in the same boat. I know I, I recently uh, ordered in a power bank and a few new leads just to uh, spruce up what I used to refer to as my gallery, but is now just an office. Um, <laughs> I'm certainly getting used to getting up and walking 10 paces to start work. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's interesting times, I think. And I can see your gaming chair, Tom, because uh, and the listeners won't know this, but we can actually see each other now. Now that I'm a veteran of about 57 video calls and video conferences and virtual pubs and virtual pub quizzes in the last week, uh, there, there's no more shame in appearing on camera. So uh, we are <laughs> looking directly at each other.
0: Yes, absolutely. So hopefully you'll notice a change in the tone of this episode.
1: I should just mention my own um, quarantine amusements at the moment. If, uh, if anybody doesn't follow me uh, on Twitter at, at InvaderAce1, I've set myself the task of reviewing every single episode of The Simpsons in order in a single tweet per episode. Um, <laughs> I, I'm just up to the start of Season 4 at the minute, and I'm already going a bit bonkers. Um, I'm just about to, to hit 600 episodes to go, so come join me.
0: Wow, good stuff.
1: But I suppose we'd better get back to happier times, that being October the 10th, 1991, when this episode first aired. But Gareth, I hear you cry. What was the UK number one at that stage? To the surprise of absolutely nobody, it's a further week for Brian Adams. But at least we've got a new number two. And what a doozy it is. It's Scorpions with Wind of Change 1991 (laughs) re-release.
0: What? Okay, right. I know that song. I have no idea why. It w- okay, well, you've got to tell me, why on earth was it re-released in 1991?
1: Well, I mean, it is it is basically the Berlin Wall. Now, I know it's a little while after the fall of the Berlin Wall, but that was uh, it was one of the anthems of that time, and that's why
0: that was re-released at this stage. Wow, okay. So, yeah, but, hang on. The Berlin Wall came down like two years ago from October, 1991. Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: But you see that that's the thing. When we get to the point where I tell you how much this is sold, uh, you will definitely not, uh, not think it was a bad idea to re-release it. So um, obviously in this country, the Scorpions will forever be known for this song at this general period of time, but they have been going since 1965. Mm -hmm, and are obviously much better known in their home country of Germany. Wind of change from their 1990 album, Crazy World. So to be fair, it was, when we say a re-release, it had been released the year before. It's a song by a German band that muses on the socio-political changes in Europe and also has some catchy whistling. And as such, has become inextricably linked with the fall of the Berlin Wall. But it is not as good as their 1984 face-melter, Rock You Like a Hurricane. (laughs) the single has sold over 15 million copies. Wow. And is is apparently, and this really caught me by surprise, it's apparently the 15th best-selling physical single ever. Now, Tom, you can probably see where this is going. So if you wouldn't mind queuing up Led Zeppelin for me, I'm going to take us through the top 15 biggest-selling physical singles ever. (laughs)
0: Okay, here we go.
1: At number 15, it's Scorpions with Wind of Change. At 14, John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John with You're the One That I Want. At 13, it's Brian Adams, Everything I Do, I Do For You. Mariah Carey in at 12 with All I Want For Christmas Is You. At 11, it's Celine Dion with My Heart Will Go On. And into the top 10, we have Baccarat with Yes Sir, I Can Boogie. At number nine, it's The Ink Spots with If I Didn't Care. At eight, a rather sharpless entry for USA for Africa and We Are the World. At seven, it's Elvis Presley with It's Now or Never. And at number six, Whitney Houston with I Will Always Love You. Into that hot top five, it's Bill Haley and His Comments with Rock Around the Clock. At four, it's Bing, Bing Crosby with Silent Light. Number three, a surprise entry for Mungo Jerry with In the Summertime. And at number two, it's Elton John with Candle in the Wind 1997. So at number one, to the surprise of nobody, it's White Christmas, It's Big Again.
0: Wow, okay. I, I would have assumed that Elton John was number one on that with Candle in the Wind, because I remember people just, after Diana died, people just grabbing, you know, literal fistfuls of that cd off the shelf is quite extraordinary i don't want to
1: sound uh, too morbid but uh, i hope we get to talk about the death of princess diana because as a as a sort of teenage uh, british citizen that was an amazing time to live through just in well, terms of all, all the little differences
0: it was the defining event of the 90s especially from a british perspective i remember my dad being uh, called into work at three in the morning Uh, because he works in newspaper distribution and it was you know it it just happened right in the middle of the night um and you know in the lead up to it it was completely unexpected because everyone was following it the whole you know dodie al-fired divorce all the drama and yeah one day it was just like that's it no more of that it was it was bizarre Absolute madness. Yeah, so
1: looking forward to that. Um, Oh, by the way, it's also worth noting that as well as the the chart of the best-selling physical singles, there's now also a parallel chart of the best-selling non-physical singles, and it is all utter tripe. (laughs) The US viewership for this episode was a Nielsen of 13.4, which is approximately 12.5 million households. It was 31st overall for the week and the highest rated show on Fox. The production number is 8F03 and it was credited to everyone's favourite fictional writer, John Schwarzwelder, who we discussed in episode five, but the first McDonald's in Moscow. The chalkboard gag was high explosives and school don't mix. And the couch gag was the family forming a human pyramid. So what happens? Well, the Simpsons are going to eat breakfast as Bart tucks in some frosted crusty Flakes and Lisa some Jackie O's. Bart is about to have an absolutely terrible day, starting with Homer stealing the prize from his cereal and continuing through his dog genuinely eating his homework, missing the school bus, tearing his shorts and forgetting his permission slip for the school trip to the chocolate factory. The latter leaves him stuck licking envelopes for Skinner and despite making a game of it, he can glean little joy from this black letter day. The Chocolate Factory trip is unsurprisingly fantastic, but as Bart doesn't go, I mention it only for an appearance by Troy McClure, who you may remember from such films as The Revenge of Abe Lincoln and The Wackiest Covered Wagon in the West. Bart eventually makes good his escape from school, but suffers a skateboarding accident and falls down some stairs to a mysterious doorway. And just when things can't get any worse, the Mafia hold him at gunpoint. Bart has blundered upon Springfield's legitimate businessman's social club, but is allowed to leave with his life. An important point this, they do state that they would have shot and killed a 10-year-old child if the next two things had gone wrong. (laughs) After he shows an apparent knack for accidentally picking winning horses and mixing a soupoib Manhattan. He is given a job at the club and proceeds to start making more money than a 10-year-old really should. In return, he introduces Fat Tony, Louie, Legs and the gang to Itchy and Scratchy through the episode The Sound of Silencers, (laughs) in which Itchy simply slaughters Scratchy and some other cats with a Tommy gun, spelling out the end with bullet holes as he does so. Delightful. (laughs) It's around this stage that Bart becomes a tad more aware of the moral problems of his line of work when he is asked to look after 12,000 cartons of Laramie cigarettes and is nearly forced to smoke them all by Homer. His head is turned back by a semi-convincing argument from Fat Tony and a very sharp new suit. However, it's becoming very clear he's being tailed by the FBI, flowers by Irene, of course, causing Homer to step in, but also be charmed by the wise guys. One person who isn't charmed is Principal Skinner, who gives Bart detention, causing Bart to be late to his job, and Louis to have to make the cocktail for a key visitor, who asks, not unreasonably, What he has done to deserve a flat, flavourless, doombar, I mean Manhattan (laughs) and gives Tony the kiss of death. Skinner then goes missing after the mafia pay him a visit, and the police call in a psychic to investigate. Oh, one of your favourites there, Tom. Her best guess being that Willie Nelson will swim the English Channel. (laughs) Just as Bart confronts the gangsters and Tony pleads his innocence, Chief Wigam arrives and arrests them all. But in court, it becomes clear that the others are happy to pin the blame on Bart, setting him up for the fall, not helped by Homer's pathetic testimony. But just as sentence is about to be passed, a rough looking Skinner makes an appearance, noting that he had actually just talked to Tony's crew, but had been buried beneath a stack of newspapers in his basement, preserving his sanity by making a game of dribbling a basketball, setting records and trying to beat those records before a MacGyver-esque escape using a vacuum cleaner's cord retract function that suggests he was paying extra attention in the short time he was dating Patty. The guys still want Bart around, but he won't soon forget that slight, and, having refused, the family return home to watch Blood on the Blackboard, the Bart Simpson story, a sensationalist retelling of the events of the episode, for which they will receive no royalties, as it has been tweaked just enough. And everybody agrees that sleazy Hollywood producers are the real criminals. A timely proclamation in early 2020. And that's the end of the episode, but arguably the beginning of so much more. I reckon that right here is the start of the golden era of The Simpsons. So far this season, we've had a turbo nods filled episode and some hangovers from season two, including a heavily political one. This sets the template for the next six or seven seasons better than any episode before it. The schmaltz is kept to a minimum. There's a bunch of popular culture references. A character is thrown into a ridiculous situation, and we see them react to it with hilarious results. The only thing missing? Homer Simpson in the leading role. But we'll come to that soon enough.
0: Mm. What did you reckon, Tom? Well, I really, really love this one. It's it's just such a step up from when Flanders failed. And it's classic Schwarzwelder because... Only a Schwarzwelder script could consider killing a 10-year-old child. So, so, yeah, I don't know which of the writers was pretending to be him at the time, but that's, you know, but that's John Schwarzwelder providing a vehicle for everyone's darkest desires, I suppose. As he always does,
1: in many, many ways. That that Indeed. sweet, sweet, non-existent man.
0: <laughs> ah.
1: Would you like to hear some very predictable character debuts from this episode? Yes, please. So, Marion Anthony D'Amico, although we'll come back to the name in a bit, known more commonly as Fat Tony, the underboss of the Springfield Mafia, as voiced by Joe Mantegna, although Sheldon Leonard was apparently the first choice. Mantegna has gangster credentials, though, as he appeared in a Godfather movie. Unfortunately, it was the third one. (laughs) Naming Controversy Alert. In this episode, he's referred to as William Fat Tony Williams, which has since been dismissed as an obvious pseudonym. In Season 8, Episode 3, The Homer They Fall, he's introduced as Anthony D'Amico. And finally, in Season 12, Episode 3, Insane Clown Poppy, no lesser source than perhaps the worst gangster ever, Frankie the Squealer, reveals that Tony's real name is Marion. Now, Fat Tony is a great example of a character that I think they probably considered to be a one and done deal, but that has gone on to feature in many, many more episodes going forwards. His wife, Anna Maria, is revealed to have been whacked by natural causes, whilst his son, Michael, will later feature in season 18, episode one, the mook, the chef, the wife and her homer. Jesus, they were really reaching for titles then, and that was 13 seasons ago. Mm hmm. Fat Tony and his associates are a familiar sight in Springfield, often working for or around the police and the mayor's office, be it flooding the streets with alcohol several minutes after the end of Prohibition, supplying the school with plenty of rat's milk, which was probably better than the milk they were used to, or generally getting on with the rough and tumble of mafia life, such as killing stoolies, dumping bodies and laundering money. In season 22, episode 9, Donnie Fatso, Homer goes undercover to try to get some dirt on Fat Tony, but the pair become friends. When Homer is found out, Tony has a heart attack and dies. He is replaced by his thinner cousin, Anthony Paul D'Amico, known as Fit Tony. Sadly, the stress of the repeated assassination attempts he is forced to survive causes him to turn to comfort eating, and his nickname becomes first Fit Fat Tony and eventually Fat Tony. So the character now referred to as Fat Tony, who is still appearing in The Simpsons and appeared as recently as Season 31, Episode 3, The Fat Blue Line, which first aired in October 2019, isn't Fat Tony, but might as well be. Also debuting in this episode are two other legitimate businessmen known as Legs and Louie. We'll have to wait a while to meet the apparent godfather of the Springfield Mafia, Don Vittorio DiMaggio. Plus Frankie and his much more effective, though though no less frustrating counterpart, Johnny Tightlips. <laughs> Lex was voiced by Hank Azaria, but is now voiced by Carl Viedegott, who joined the show in 1998. Whilst Louis is voiced by Dan Castellanata, who based his voice on a gangster actor icon in Joe Pesci. They won't receive much character development, indeed. They only vaguely have different personalities to each other, though Louis tends to be the more hot blooded of the two. Probably worth noting the huge similarities between this three man mob of fat Tony, Legs and Louis, and the robot mafia from Futurama. Dombot, Joey Mousepad, and Clamps, who largely fall into exactly the same roles with very similar delivery. There's even an episode where Bender joins the fulfilling Bart's role here albeit with a great deal more glee and abandon, on season two, episode 13, Bender Gets Made. Assumedly, Gangster Chic never goes out of style, even a thousand years in the future. Also, Neil Patrick Harris technically appears as himself, albeit playing Bob Simpson in Blood on the Blackboard. Harris was born in 1973, and at the time of this role, he was best known for playing the titular character in Doogie Howser, M.D., a show about a child prodigy who becomes a doctor at age 14. So he was known for playing younger characters and therefore a good fit for the role of alternate Bart. That show ended in 1992 and Harris kept busy with a number of roles on TV and in film, including in the fantastic film adaptation of Starship Troopers and as a caricature of himself in Harold and Kumar Go to White Castle, released in this country as Harold and Kumar Get the Munchies as we don't have the White Castle restaurant franchise on these shores. He would eventually become a household name a second time with his role as the irredeemable twat Barney Stinson in the inexplicably massive popular sitcom, How I Met Your Mother, which I despise. Having said that, I do have a soft spot for Harris himself, who always seems to have a very good sense of self and is almost always involved with good projects. Two quick facts. He became the first openly gay celebrity to host the Oscars in 2015. And his autobiography is apparently in the format of a choose-your-own-adventure book.
0: True story. Hmm.
1: Okay, that brings me to my uh, Did You Knows, Tom. Yep, did okay. you Did you know all the horses in the race that Bart is forced to bet on are named after famous animated characters' catchphrases? We have Ain't I a Stinker from Bugs Bunny? i should have made this a quiz i'm going to make this a quiz right i'm going back <laughs> did you know did you know that all the horses in the race that bart is forced to bet on are named after famous animated characters catchphrases tom can you name them
0: oh what um oh hang on there's ain't i a here? i think bugs bunny says that absolutely oh, there might oh what else is there um what's up duck no.
1: no no that that wouldn't be out of place in this list but
0: um well obvi- obviously it's it's eat my shorts eat my shorts uh, yep who, who wins it um apart from that now i'm stuck okay so there's
1: yabba dabba do uh fred flintstone suffering oh, succotash from uh, daffy duck uh that's all folks from porky pig and i am what i am from popeye uh I'll also eat my shorts and don't have a cow um So, yeah, fantastic. Perhaps unsurprisingly, a large amount of what happens to Bart in this episode is inspired by, or entirely ripped off from, Goodfellas, a 1990 Martin Scorsese crime film that a lot of people seem to think is the best film ever, and I've never seen. Blood on the Blackboard features the -the in-universe version of Joe Mantegna voicing that version of Fat Tony. Very meta. Well... One Fine Day by the Chiffons was licensed for this episode and plays in the scene where Bart is serving drinks to the mobsters. The team originally wanted Be My Baby by the Ronettes, which is a huge tune, but could not get the copyright. Speaking of music, Bart sings the song Witchcraft, composed by Cy Coleman with lyrics by Carolyn Lee and recorded three times by that good friend of the Mafia, Frank Sinatra. (laughs) Plus, Plus later on, Robert Smith of The Cure, that was news to me. And still speaking of music, the Itchy and Scratchy episode's title is a pun on the Simon and Garfunkel song The Sound of Silence, as was featured in the Sam Etic film The Graduate and parodied in season five, episode 21, Lady Bouvier's Lover, where it is apparently performed by Kip Lennon. <laughs> and finally, Bart mixes a Manhattan in this episode, And if you want to make one at home, here's the recipe. You'll need whiskey, sweet vermouth, and bitters. The International Bartenders Association recommends the following ratios. 5 centiliters of rye whiskey, 2 centiliters of sweet red vermouth, and a dash of Angostura bitters. The cocktail is usually stirred and then strained into a cocktail glass and garnished with a dark maraschino cherry.
0: Mm. Soupy twist. Mm. To be honest... um... I was at a cocktail bar, uh, didn't know what to order, so ordered a Manhattan just because I'd heard of it in The Simpsons. Oh, and, excellent. Was, and was then asked if I wanted it dry, medium, or sweet, and uh, got a bit <laughs> stumped there. So, uh, so I just plumped for dry. It was very nice, though. Excellent. Was was it dry? Oh yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, it, yes. Yeah, really nice because 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 I'm I'm a little bit of a whiskey drinker myself. And it, uh, yeah, you 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 have the whiskey being offset by the the moof, and uh, uh, then you have the bitters for a bit of additional flavour, but not too much because bitters are, well, well, they're exceptionally bitter as the name suggests.
1: Excellent. Well, about the only thing I seem to be able to get delivered at the moment during our uh, current situation is booze. So maybe I'll j- just get a bottle of each of those and uh, and have a play about. Um. Which uh, I was about to say all our listeners should as well, but I don't think I can encourage that kind of behaviour. Excellent. Well, uh, so to get us out of this sticky situation without having to drink a load of Manhattans, Tom, let's go to the meme count.
0: Yes. Now, for this episode, I reckon there are two memes. The minor one is what's a truck when Chief Wiggum asks Fat Tony about the shipment of... Uh, laramie cigarettes and he replies what's a truck so that's used if anyone wants to mock playing dumb about anything but obviously the big one is i made a game of it it appears twice in the episode and it's used whenever someone uh, tries to make a mundane situation interesting and we are in a very mundane situation at the moment if you're not infected with coronavirus and you know, or, or if a loved one has has it or you're in the medical profession at all, life is pretty dull. I mean, I, I'm a programmer for a living. So during the day, I'm just stuck in my bedroom and I made a game of it. Seeing how many lines of code I could write in an hour and then trying to break that record.
1: <laughs> well, apparently my, my job is making a game of how many conference calls we can do in a single day. Um, <laughs> uh, let me assure you that record just keeps getting broken you, you wouldn't believe it I, I think i've actually been on hold with one conference call to join another conference call at one stage
0: um yeah i can believe that
1: <laughs> fantastic right okay so a good episode i think a very good episode oh, that's very beamable one. lots of debuts lots to talk about so tom what have you got for us
0: okay so this is my main story and i'm talking about clarence thomas the us supreme court judge so his appointment was shrouded in controversy with his confirmation hearing being reopened after an fbi report was leaked and reported on by the national news but before we get to that you may remember in the last episode i went over every single us president but what i didn't do was go over how the us works and the supreme court is a vital part of that so if you remember apu's civics test there are three branches of the us government These are the executive, legislative, and judicial. I should have asked you that as a quiz. Oh, never mind. (laughs) So, the executive branch is the President of the USA and his or her office. The legislative is Congress, which comprises the lower house, the House of Representatives, and the upper house, which is the Senate. They are kind of roughly comparable to the UK House of Commons and House of Lords. And then there's the judiciary which is made up of various courts, the highest of which being the Supreme Court. So everything revolves around laws and the Constitution. The purpose of Congress is to make laws. The purpose of the presidency is to execute them, hence executive. And the point of the judiciary is to interpret the laws and decide on how they should be upheld. These are the checks and balances that American pundits are so fond of. So all of these offices are as old as the USA itself, being spelled out in the first few articles of the U.S. Constitution. And if you've heard about the Constitution but are not entirely sure what it is, allow me to explain. The U.S. Constitution is the supreme law of the land surpassing all other laws. It's the framework for the entire country. If you work in any sort of development environment, I hope you'll appreciate this analogy. It's like a technical specification that everyone has to sign off on. It covers everything, and if it needs changing, it can only be done at great cost. And as with tech specs, in my personal opinion, it's great that it exists. It's usually fairly straightforward to see if anything goes against the constitution, i.e. it's unconstitutional and therefore not allowed. Here in the UK, we do have a constitution, but it isn't formally written down. It's almost literally pieced together from sugar packets. You may remember that in the recent Brexit debacle, the Prime Minister Theresa May put her Brexit deal to the House of Commons, where it was roundly defeated. She then brought it forward a second time, where it was again defeated, but by a smaller margin. She wanted to bring it back for a third time, but was stopped by John Bercow, the Speaker of the House, who used a precedent from 1604, as defined in Erskine May, the parliamentary rulebook. This book was first published in 1844 and is currently only available from the UK Parliament bookshop for a princely sum of £450. So that bit of British Constitution is hardly accessible. The US Constitution, on the other hand, is comparatively short and available for everyone to read. Article three describes the court system, including the Supreme Court. It also sanctifies the right to trial by jury. The Supreme Court was intended to rule over constitutional issues and be the highest court in the land. The leader of the Supreme Court is called the Chief Justice, and the other members are associate justices. Originally, it had six members, all put forward by George Washington himself. The first Chief Justice was John Jay, the second governor of New York. Whether he gives his name to John Jay Smith, I have no idea. They were all confirmed by the Senate in 1789. The first case they decided was in 1791, the case of West versus Barnes. It was, to be fair, extremely boring. Just a ruling, afraid so, just a ruling on procedure between a farmer who was in debt and his landlord. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I looked up and I went, oh, I wonder what the first case bef- before the Supreme Court was. And it was a case between uh, a tenant farmer who had a debt to pay and he wanted to pay pay it in paper currency and uh his landlords went no i want you know gold silver precious metals that sort of stuff and they ruled on a technicality which was based on who he could and couldn't appeal to yes very very boring <laughs> so in its early years the supreme court struggled to make an impact on american life In 1793, they heard the case of Chisholm versus the state of Georgia, where Alexander Chisholm, an executor of the estate of Robert Farquhar, a man who had supplied weapons to the state of Georgia during the Revolutionary War, tried to sue the state of Georgia for money owed for those weapons. Georgia refused to send any representative claiming that as a sovereign state, they couldn't be sued. The court decided in favor of Chisholm, allowing him to sue them. And the states weren't at all happy with this. Now, the Supreme Court is there to uphold the Constitution. So if Congress doesn't like the decision, there's only one thing it can do. Change the Constitution. And that's just what they did with the 11th Amendment passed just two years later. The amendment established that private individuals could, in fact, not sue states. I love that. If if you've got the Supreme Court going, right, OK, well, it's our job to uphold the Constitution. And then Congress going, well, we don't like your decision. We're going to change the Constitution, you bastards. So, yes. And,
1: of course, I, I know how they do that from the Amendment to Be song.
0: Yes, absolutely. So, as the years went on, the power and prestige of the Supreme Court grew. The number of justices fluctuated over time, but finally settled on nine in 1869, the level it has remained to this day. Supreme Court judges are nominated by the President but they have to be approved by the Senate. Nominees are put before a Senate committee who interview them before making a recommendation. They are then accepted or rejected by a simple majority vote. Once in the role, a Supreme Court justice has the right to that role for life, unless they do something really bad and are removed. The only person who got even close to being removed was Samuel Chase. He was impeached by the House of Representatives for impartiality, but was acquitted by the Senate. And this happened all the way back in 1805. So no one's so no one's even tried to remove a Supreme Court judge for 200 years. I'm sorry, but this whole for life business, it just doesn't sit well with me.
1: I mean, the, just anybody, it would be the same if it was a president or prime minister, anybody that you can't shift from a job ever. It's just a bad idea.
0: Mm, mm. Yeah, I, yeah, I know what you mean. It, 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 it's, a, you know, it's a contentious point of whether someone should be on, on the bench for life. And, you know, the, the, some Supreme Court judges are on the bench for a very long time, for decades. So anyway, um, so therefore appointing a Supreme Court judge is a very big deal, as their influence can linger for decades after the president who nominated them has rode off into the sunset. And so that brings us to the appointment of Clarence Thomas. It all started with the retirement of Thurgood Marshall, who was something of a legend in the field of civil rights. Marshall was born in Baltimore, and his parents would take him to see court cases before they debated them at home. That's some proactive parenting there. He studied at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania before going on to get a law degree from Howard University School of Law in 1933. He wasn't allowed to study at his hometown university, the University of Maryland, as they had segregationist policies. A year later, he would join the NAACP, the National Association for the Advancement of Coloured People, that's what it's called, and one of the first cases he fought was that of Murray versus Pearson, where he successfully argued to the Maryland Court of Appeal that segregation at the University of Maryland was illegal, because under the separate but equal policy, black people should have the opportunity to study at an institution of equal prestige as the University of Maryland, but no such institutions were available. Throughout the 40s and 50s, he brought many cases to the Supreme Court, most famously Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, where the court unanimously decided that segregation in education was unconstitutional and in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. In 1961, President John F. Kennedy appointed Marshall to the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit, a higher appeals court with jurisdiction over most of the northeast of the USA. A few years later, Kennedy's successor, Lyndon Johnson, made Marshall the Solicitor General of the USA, the first African-American to hold the position. The job of the Solicitor General is to argue for the federal government in front of the Supreme Court, so it's a very important role. Just two years later, a seat on the Supreme Court became available following the retirement of Tom C. Clark, and Johnson nominated Marshall for the position. He was easily confirmed with a Senate vote of 69 in favour and 11 opposed, becoming the first African-American to sit on the Supreme Court on August 30th, 1967. He would remain there for the next 24 years. He'd see many landmark cases, but arguably none more so than the case of Roe v. Wade in 1973. Ah, I've heard of this one, but I don't know why. Right, Okay. Okay. Um, Roe v. Wade is hugely important and very emotive because it deals with abortion. The case was bought by a woman named Norma McCorvey, who went by the pseudonym Jane Roe. She was pregnant and wanted an abortion, but was denied by her home state of Texas, who had made abortion illegal in all but few circumstances. She filed a lawsuit against Henry Wade, her local district attorney. A district court found in her favour, and the state of Texas appealed directly to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court decided in McCauvey's favour by a margin of seven to two, with Marshall and the Chief Justice, one Warren Burger, being in the majority. They decided that the Due Process Clause of the 14th Amendment protected the right to abortion, that that should be balanced with protecting prenatal life. Therefore, they decided that abortion was always permitted in the first trimester of pregnancy, somewhat restricted in the second trimester, and almost wholly prohibited in the third. The ruling made abortion legal throughout the whole of the USA, and conservative states have been looking to find a way around it ever since. Anyway, with Marshall's imminent retirement in 1991, President George H.W. Bush looked for a candidate to take his place. As Marshall was a hero of civil rights, it seemed only fitting that his successor should also be an African-American. However, with the Republican Party being a conservative one, the ideal candidate should themselves be conservative. Bush believed he'd found the ideal candidate in Clarence Thomas. Thomas had a distinguished legal career and was from a Catholic background and therefore likely to be against abortion. He was also a bit of libertarian, being a fan of Ayn Rand, and at one point he required his staff to watch the 1949 film adaptation of the novel Fountainhead. Thomas graduated from Yale Law School in 1974 and became an assistant attorney general in Missouri, working under John Danforth, the state's attorney general. When Danforth was elected to the Senate in 1976, Thomas went on to work for Monsanto, becoming one of their attorneys. Monsanto. Evil GM people. However, he wasn't there for long. In 1979, he moved to Washington to be reunited with Danforth, working as a legal assistant to the Senate Commerce Committee. The start of the 80s saw Ronald Reagan elected to the White House, and Thomas soon started working for his administration, His first job was Assistant Secretary of Education for the Office of Civil Rights, part of the U.S. Department of Education. One of his attorney advisors there was one Anita Hill, another graduate of Yale Law School. Shortly afterwards, Thomas moved to become chairman of the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC. Hill would move there herself before leaving to become an assistant professor at Oral Roberts University. Thomas would remain at the EEOC until 1989, when the recently elected George H.W. Bush nominated him to be a judge on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit, another high-profile position and a big change from his previous role. Just over a year into the role, a seat on the Supreme Court became available when William Brennan retired after 34 years on the bench. Bush wanted Thomas to fill the seat, but but was persuaded to nominate David Souter instead. Hopefully these are all familiar names if, <laughs> if you're following The Simpsons. Yeah. Thomas was nominated to replace Marshall a year later. Thomas's nomination was controversial and seen as political by his opponents. Civil rights groups were worried that he had criticised affirmative action in the past, and others were worried that he may try and overturn Roe versus Wade. The confirmation hearings began on September 10th, 1991, and they were tense, lasting for five days and attracting a significant amount of media interest. While these proceedings were ongoing, Anita Hill came forward to the FBI and made allegations of sexual harassment against Thomas. Her interview with the FBI was leaked to the press and it became headline news. Following this, the Senate committee, chaired by future Vice President Joe Biden, made the extraordinary decision to reopen the hearings so that they could hear evidence from Anita Hill and allow Clarence Thomas to respond to the allegations. And these hearings were broadcast live and attracted an audience of about 20 million people. Wow. Mm, yeah, this this was a big deal. This this was a very much a water cooler topic at the time. In her testimony, Anita Hill said that on several occasions, Clarence Thomas would pressure her to go out with him and went into details of how he boasted of his own sexual prowess and pornography that he'd recently watched. According to Hill, this behaviour started when they were working together at the Department of Education. When they moved to the EEOC, it appeared to stop, but started again months later. In his defence, Clarence Thomas did not mince his words. He completely denied everything and used the following words to deny the hearings. This is a circus. It's a national disgrace. And from my standpoint, as a black American, as far as I'm concerned, it is a high tech lynching for uppity blacks who in any way deign to think for themselves, to do for themselves, to have different ideas. And it is a message that unless you count down to an old order, this is what will happen to you. You will be lynched, destroyed, caricatured by a committee of the US Senate rather than hung from a tree. So, you know, you cannot get more evocative imagery than that. I mean, it's 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 really quite something. So, in his defence, the committee heard from several of Clarence Thomas's colleagues. Nancy Altman, who shared an office with him, claimed that she heard everything that went on and never heard anything like what Hill described. In written testimony, Angela Wright, who worked under Thomas at the EEOC, claimed that he pressured her for a date, but she didn't feel intimidated by it. Mm. One of Anita Hill's lawyers, Charles Ogletree, paid for and persuaded Hill to take a lie detector test. According to the president of the American International Security Cooperation, Paul K. Minor, Hill passed the test, showing no signs of deception. Fortunately, the committee recognized that polygraph tests are bullshit, they're my words, not theirs, and did not consider the result in their deliberations. And following these deliberations, the committee was required to advise the Senate on what to do next. They voted by 13 to 1 to pass the nomination to the Senate without recommendation meaning that the Senate could vote on Thomas's nomination even though the committee did not express their approval of it. On October 15th, 1991, five days after Bart the murderer first aired, the Senate voted on Clarence Thomas's appointment to the Supreme Court. Although the Democrats were in charge of the Senate, enough of them voted with Republicans for Thomas to be appointed, while two Republicans voted with the Democrats. In the end, Thomas was confirmed by 52 votes to 48. The closest vote in the Supreme Court appointment since 1881 when stanley matthews no not that one was approved by was approved by 24 votes to 23 i mean if stanley matthews was a football legend and a supreme court judge that would be quite the career (laughs) so the events of clarence thomas's appointment opened a national debate on sexual harassment in the workplace the senate elections of 1992 were dubbed the year of the woman and by june 1993 the number of women in the senate had gone up to seven. Ooh, sky high what a revolution eh yep so as for anita hill she continued to work as a professor but was pressured to leave her post a scholarship was set up in her name but was defunded after she left the university in 1996 and it was never filled She moved to Berkeley in 1997 but soon moved on to Brandeis University in Massachusetts. She has since written many books articles and appeared as a speaker writing her autobiography Speaking Truth to Power in 1997. As of April 2020 Clarence Thomas is still a supreme court justice and is currently the longest serving member of the court. He was one of the few dissenters in the case of Obergfell versus Hodges the 2015 Supreme Court case where the court decided by a majority of five to four that marriage equality was guaranteed by the 14th Amendment of the Constitution. So, you know, boo to him for that. And that brings to a conclusion our unintentional American double header. I now yield to Gareth, who I'm sure will conform me of the appearances of Supreme Court justices in The Simpsons. Absolutely. So there's this surprising turn of events
1: whereby homer of all people seems quite up on what's going on with supreme court justices um he mentions quite a few of them by name earl warren being one of them in an episode that we'll come back to where it's confirmed that he wasn't a stripper um (laughs) he also mentions john marshall charles evans hughes warren burger uh, there's a mention for uh, Taft who was president Taft obviously, but also served as chief justice um, in the home of the Smithers. Um, the Supreme court itself has been mentioned previously when Lionel Hutz's fake receptionist uh, lied and said that he had had to help them on some freedom thing in bark gets hit by a car. Um, and uh, of course, as you alluded to earlier, Homer mentions uh, Souter. In fact, Lisa mentions uh, Souter as a nerd of note, yeah. uh, and Homer, Homer was disappointed. Uh, <laughs> in Homer, Homer goes to college. But the main mention of uh, the Supreme Court uh, is in season four, episode six, "Itchy and Scratchy: The Movie," where it is revealed that in the future, and I believe this also comes to pass in the canon future of The Simpsons, Bart becomes Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. So there we go. Quite a lot. Quite a lot of Supreme Court action in The Simpsons. Um, but nothing like the uh, the uh, human circus that the actual Supreme Court appears to be from your, uh, uh, <laughs> your uh, tales there.
0: Well, it's very interesting because, I mean, I didn't know a huge amount about the Supreme Court before I started researching this. And one thing that I find quite striking is it's it almost feels like an alternative way to get things done in the states because you think that, right, everything's done through bills. Um, People make bills, they tack riders onto them and they uh, they go through Congress and then they get approved and then they get enacted. But if you can persuade the Supreme Court that something that someone's doing or not doing is unconstitutional, then you can get stuff done that way i mean marriage equality is a big one so and and the supreme court's decision there is no route to appeal because the supreme court is the highest court of the land so if they decide something then that's it that happens and it applies to the whole of the usa so so even if they hear a case from you know one person and they make their decision then that decision applies to everyone it's quite extraordinary way of doing things when you think about it.
1: Yeah, and especially when you consider how different the states are to each other in terms of their own individual laws. Um, something sort of unilateral like that—it it must send shockwaves through the the whole thing.
0: Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, obviously, marriage equality was a big deal when that was when that was made by the Supreme Court. So you know, there were some people in very conservative states who were not happy about it at all. Um, but one of the things about it is is it is the influence for uh, our supreme court um, here here in the UK we do have a supreme court and we've had it since about 2008 i think uh, set up by Tony Blair of all people ah. and and uh, the reason why you don't hear about our supreme court is because it is it, it, it isn't it, used in the same way as the American Supreme Court, because obviously we don't have a written constitution. Um, our Supreme Court is used to decide uh, matters of utmost importance rather than an appeals process. And it, and it hit the headlines again du- uh, during the Brexit process, because when Boris Johnson became prime minister, one of the first things he did was prorogue parliament. And prorogation <laughs> was... was. Uh, supposed to be something that's really boring and not that many people know about um so the idea is parliament works in yearly cycles and at the end of each cycle when everything in the queen's speech has been discussed because you know at the start of the cycle you have the queen's speech where the queen uh on behalf of the government tells them what they're going to discuss and then at the end of that year they've discussed everything they prorogue parliament and then they get it ready for another queen's speech and the cycle starts again. Brexit has just thrown the whole thing into an enormous mess. And I think there were I think there was a you know looming deadline for when Brexit had to be done when Boris Johnson came in. And one of the first things he did was prorogue parliament even though they were right in the middle in the middle of a session they were still discussing things including a a very important domestic violence bill and that all got thrown by the wayside Um, various people challenged that saying that it was illegal the case made its way to the supreme court and all 12 of our supreme court justices we've got 12 which is a daft number you should not have an even number of anything (laughs) making the sort of decisions But they decided unanimously that the prorogation was illegal because it was being done for political reasons, you know, to uh, to shut down debate in Parliament, to to stop parliamentary scrutiny for several weeks. And the prorogation got got stopped and the bills got debated. So, yeah, we do have a Supreme Court, uh, but we just don't hear about it so much.
1: Excellent. 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 Well, it's always good to provide bonus material, particularly at this time. Um, (laughs) But I think we'll leave it there. Uh, So until next time, don't forget that you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at and check out our 90s playlist on Spotify, which is about to have scorpions on. If you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Bye. Stay indoors, everyone.